smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about image optimization. What steps should we follow for performance images in 2021? We talked to expert Adi Osmani to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In the article Meet Has, a native CSS parent selector, Adrian Becky asks what puts the parent selector amongst the most requested features in CSS, and how are we as developers working around not having one? Adrian checks out an early spec for the Has selector and shows how it should improve the CSS workflow once it's available. Stefan Judis looks at three front-end auditing tools I discovered recently. Building a faster website can be complex these days. There are so many things to consider, so it's challenging to get everything right. Here are three less-known tools that might help you get there. Cosima Milka walks us through useful front-end boilerplates and starter kits in this latest roundup. We don't need to write everything from scratch every single time. With boilerplates and starter kits, we can set up our projects faster and get to work immediately. Cosima takes us through some of the best. In Web Design Done Well, Making Use of Audio, Fred O'Brien notes that although design often revolves around visuals, the other senses deserve some love too. In this article, Fred helps us to tune into audio features that are making sites sing. And in When CSS Isn't Enough, JavaScript requirements for accessible components, Stephanie Eccles notes that to ensure the accessibility of your interface, JavaScript is a necessary addition to accomplish focus management, respond to keyboard events, and toggle ARIA attributes. Stephanie looks at tooltips, modals, tabs, carousels, and drop-down menus as just some of the user interface components that require more than CSS to be accessible. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's an engineering manager working on Google Chrome, where his team focuses on speed, helping to keep the web fast. Devoted to the open source community, his past contributions include Lighthouse, Yeoman, Critical, and Todo MVC. So we know he knows his way around optimizing for web performance. But did you know he once won the Oscar for Best Actress in a Supporting Role due to a clerical error? My smashing friends, please welcome Adi Osmani. Hi, Adi. How are you? I'm smashing. That's good to hear. Uh, I wanted to talk to you today about images on the web. Uh, it, it's an area where there's been a surprising amount of changes and innovation over the last few years. And you've just written a very comprehensive book all about image optimization for smashing. What was the, the motivation to, to sort of think at this time, now is the time for a book on, on image optimization? That's a great question. I think 
you know, we know that images have been a pretty key part of the web for decades and that our brains, inter- you know, are able to interpret images much faster than they can text. But this overall topic uh, is one that's continues to get more and more interesting and more nuanced over time. And uh, I always always tell people, this is this is probably, I think, my third or fourth book. I've never intentionally set out to write a book. Um, I began this book writing out an article about image optimization. And then over time, I found that I'd accidentally written a whole book about it. Uh, and we've been, we've been working on this project for about two years now. Uh, and even in that time, the industry has been kind of evolving. Browsers and tooling around image images and image formats have been evolving. And so I, I wrote this book because I found myself um, finding it hard to stay on top of all of these changes. And I thought, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to be a good web citizen and try to track everything that I've learned in one place so everybody else can take advantage of it. It is one of those areas, I think, uh, with a lot of um, performance optimization uh, in the browser, there's um, it's a it's a rapidly shifting landscape, isn't it? Where um, a technique that you've learned as being current and being best practice, uh, some technology shift happens, and then you find it's actually a, an anti pattern and you shouldn't be doing it. And, and trying to keep your knowledge up. Um, and uh, and make sure that you're you're reading the right articles and learning the right things, and you're not reading something from two years ago is quite difficult. So to have it all collected in one well-researched book from an authoritative source is uh, is really tremendous. Yeah, even uh, from from an author's perspective, one of the most interesting things, and perhaps one of the most stressful things for our editorial team, was I would I would hand in a chapter and say it was done, and then two weeks later something would change in a browser, and I'd be like, oh wait. <laughs> I have to make another last minute change. Um, but the image landscape has is, is evolved quite a lot, even in the last year. You know, we've seen WebP support, you know, finally uh, get across the finishing line in, in most modern browsers. AVIF image support is, is in Chrome, coming to Firefox, JPEG XL, uh, lazy loading. And across the board, like we've, we've seen enhancements in how you can use images on the web um, pretty concretely in browsers. Uh, but again, a lot for folks to keep on top of. Uh, some people might view the the subject of um, image optimization as a, a sort of pretty staid topic. You know, we've all at some point in our careers learned how to export for web from our graphics uh, software. And some of us then might be in the habit of taking those exported images and running them through something like Image Optim. Um, so, you know, we might know that we should choose a JPEG when it's a photographic sort of image and a png when it's a graphic sort of based um image and think that okay that's that's it i I know image optimization i'm done but really those things are just table stakes aren't they at, at this point yeah they are i think that as our ability to um display more detailed, more crisp images uh, and images within even, you know, different contexts, depending on whether you care about art direction or not, has, has evolved over time. I think the need to figure out how you can get those images looking as beautiful as intended uh, to your end users, uh, keeping in mind their environment, their device constraints, their network constraints, um, is a difficult problem uh, and, and something that I, I know a lot of people still struggle with. Uh, and so when it comes to Thinking about uh, images and getting a slightly more refined take on this behind, you know, beyond just, hey, let's use a JPEG or let's use a PNG. 
Um, I think there's a few dimensions to this worth keeping in mind. Uh, the first is just generally compression. You, know, you, men- you mentioned you know, image optim, and a lot of us are re- used to just dragging an image over into a place and getting something smaller off the back of it. Now, um, when it comes to compression, we're usually talking about different codecs. And uh, you know, codecs are a compression technology that usually have like an encoder component to them for encoding files and a decoder component for decoding them and decompressing them. Um, and when you come to deciding whether you're using something you, you generally need to think about whether the photos or the images that you're using um, are okay for you to approach using a lossy uh, compression approach or a lossless approach. Um, just in case folks are not really as familiar with those concepts, uh, a lossless kind of approach is one where you kind of reproduce the exact same file um, at the very end upon decompression. So you're not really losing uh, much in the way of quality. Lossless is a lot more like kind of putting your image through a fax machine. You, you'll get a facsimile of the original, and it's not going to be the original file. There might be some different artifacts in place there. It might look subtly different. But in general terms, the more that you compress, the more quality that you typically lose. And so with all of these like modern image codecs, they're trying to see just how much quality you can squeeze out um, while still maintaining a relatively decent file size, uh, depending on the use case. So really, from a technology point of view, you have a a source image and then you have the destination file format, but the process of turning one into the other is open for debate. As long as you have a conforming file, how you do it is down to a codec that, you know, can have lots of different implementations and some will be better than absolutely, others. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, you know, again, uh, going going back to, to where we started with JPEG and PNG, um, folks may know the JPEG was created for a lossy compression of photos. You know, you generally get a smaller file off the back of it, and it, it can sometimes have different banding artifacts. PNG was originally created for lossless compression, uh, does pretty well on non-photographic images. But since then, uh, things have evolved. Around 2010, we started to get support for WebP, which was supposed to replace JPEG and PNG, um, and beats them, you know, in compression by a little bit. But, uh, you know, the, the number of image formats and options on the table has just kind of skyrocketed since then. I think things are headed in generally a good direction, uh, especially with modern formats like AVIF and JPEG XL. But uh, it's taken a while for us to get here. Uh, you know, e- even getting WebP support across all browsers took quite some time. And I think ultimately what swayed it is making sure that, you know, developers have been asking for it. They've had an appetite for being able to, you know, get better compression out of these modern formats and a desire to just have good compatibility across browsers for these things too. Yeah, um, WebP seems uh, really interesting to me um, because as well as having lossless and lossy compression available within the format, um, we obviously have a, a much reduced file size as a result. Um, and there's sort of good browser support and we see adoption from big companies like Google um, and Netflix and, you know, various sort of big companies. But my perception in the industry is that um, we don't see the same sort of uptake at the, at the grassroots level. Is, is WebP still waiting for its day to come? I think, I think the, I, I would say that WebP is arriving. A lot of folks have been waiting on Safari and WebKit support to materialize, and, and we finally have that. Um, but when we think about new image formats, it's very important 
that we understand what what does support actually mean. There's kind of browser support for uh, you know uh, decoding those images. We also need really good tooling support so that whether you're in a Node environment, image CDN, you know if you're in a, a CMS, uh, you have the ability to use those image formats. I can remember many years ago when WebP first came out. Uh, early adopters had this problem of, you know, you'd save your WebP file to your desktop and then suddenly, oh, wait, do I need to drag this into my browser to view it? Or my, if, I, if my users are downloading the WebP, are, are they going to get stuck and be wondering, like, what's, what's going on? And so making sure that there's pretty holistic support for the image format at both an operating system level as well as in other contexts is really important, I think, for, for an image format to take off. It's also kind of important for people who are serving up images to think about these use cases a little bit so that, you know, if, if I am saving or downloading a file, you're trying to put it into a portable format that people can generally share easily. And I, I think this is where, at least on iOS, you know, I, iOS has got support for uh, hike and hyphen and, and converting things over to JPEGs when necessary allows people to share them. So thinking through those types of use cases where we can make sure that users aren't losing out while we're delivering that better compression uh, is important, I think. When uh, I, ha- I have a, um, a slide sharing service uh, that I run that, as you can imagine, deals with hundreds of thousands of, of images. And when I was looking at, at WebP, and this was probably maybe three years ago, um, I was primarily looking at a way to reduce CDN bandwidth costs, because if you're serving a smaller file, you're being charged less to serve it. Um, but while I sort of still ne- needed a fallback image, a legacy image format as well, my calculation showed that the, the cost of storing a whole other image set outweighed the benefits of, of serving um, a, uh, a a smaller file. So here we are in 2021. Is that a decision I should be reconsidering at this point? I think I think that's a really important consideration. Uh, sometimes when we talk about how you should be approaching your image strategy, you know, it's very it's very easy to give people a high level answer of, hey, yeah, just generate five different formats, and that will that that will just scale infinitely. And it's it's not always the case. Um, I think that uh, when you have to keep storage in mind, sometimes trying to find like what is the best, most common denominator to be serving your users is worth keeping in mind. Uh, these days, I would actually say that WebP is worth considering as that common denominator for people who have been used to using, you know, the picture tag to conditionally serve different formats down to people. Um, typically, you'd use a JPEG as your, you know, main fallback. Uh, maybe it's okay these days to actually be using the WebP. Uh, as your fallback for most users, unless you've got like people who are on very, very old browsers. And I, I think we're seeing a lot less of that these days, but you definitely have some flexibility there. Now, if you're trying to be forward facing, uh, I would say go f- pick, pick one format that you feel works really well. Um, if you can approach storage in a way that scales and is, and is uh, flexible to your needs, what I would say people should do is uh, consider JPEG XL. You know, it's not technically shipping in a browser just yet. When it when it does, um, JPEG XL should be a pretty great option for a lot of photos in lossy or lossless use cases, or for non-photo use cases as well. And it's probably going to be much better than WebPV1. Um, so that that that's one place. I think the AVF is probably going to be uh, better if you need to go to really low bit rates. Uh, you know, maybe you care a lot about bandwidth. Maybe you care a little bit less about image fidelity. And at those bit rates, I could imagine it looking crisper uh, than some of the alternatives. 
And until we have JPEG XL, I try to take a look at your analytics and understand whether it's possible for you to serve AVIF. Otherwise, I'd focus on that WebP. Um, if your analytics suggest most people can be served WebP and you know you care a little bit less about wide gamut or text overlays or places where chroma subsampling may not be perfect in WebP, um, you know that, that that's certainly something worth keeping in mind. Uh, so I, I would try to keep in mind that uh, you know there, there there's not going to be a one size fits all for everybody. I personally these days worry a little bit less about the storage and egress and bandwidth costs just because I use an image CDN. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm ha- happy to say I, I use Cloudinary personally. We use we use lots of different image CDNs uh, at, at where I work. But um, I found that not having to worry as much about the maintenance costs uh, of dealing with image pipelines, dealing with how I'm going to support, like, oh, hey, here's an, yet another image format or... Uh, you know, uh, new, new types of fallbacks or new web APIs. That, that has been kind of a nice benefit to investing in something that just takes care of it for me. And then the overall costs for my use cases have been okay. But I can totally imagine that, you know, if you're running a slide service at that scale, that, that might not necessarily be an option too. Yeah, so I, I want to come back to some of these um, sort of uh, upcoming future formats. Um, but I think that's worth digging into because um, with uh, any of the sort of performance tools, Lighthouse or um, Web Page Test, if any of us run our sites through it, one of the key things that it will suggest is that we use a CDN for images. Uh, and that is um, a very realistic thing to, to do for very big companies. Is it realistic and within the reach of people building smaller websites and, and apps, or is you know, is is that actually as easy to do as it sounds? I think the question people should ask is, what are you using images for? If you only have a few images, if you're building a blog and you know the images you're adding in are rel- relatively simple, you know you don't have hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands of images, you might be okay with just approaching this uh, at build time in a very static way where you install a couple of NPM packages, maybe you're just using Sharp, and that takes care of you for the most part. Uh, there are tools that can help you with generating multiple formats. Uh, you know, It does increase your build time a little bit, but that might actually be fine for a lot of folks. And then for folks who um, do want to be able to leverage multiple formats, they don't want to deal with as much of the tooling minutiae uh, and uh, want to be able to you know, get a really rich, responsive images story in place, I would say try out an image CDN. I was personally quite reticent about using it for personal projects for the cost concerns initially. And then over time, like as I took a look at my billing, I actually realized that it's, it's saving me time that I'd otherwise be investing in addressing these problems myself. Um, I, d- I don't know how much you've had to like write custom scripts for dealing with your images in the past, but I realized, you know, if I can save myself at least a couple of days of debugging through these different NPM packages uh, a month, then, you know, the, the costs kind of take care of, uh, you know, the time I'm saving. And so, so it's okay. Uh, but it, it can be something where, you know, if, if you're scaling to hundreds of thousands or millions of images, and that's not something that's necessarily covered by your revenue or not, not something that you're prepared to pay for, you do need to think about alternative strategies. And I think we, we're, we're lucky that we have enough flexibility with the tools that are available to us today to be able to go in either of those directions, where we do something a little bit more kind of custom, uh, we tackle it ourselves or roll our own image CDN, or we invest in something slightly more commercial. And we're at a place where I'd say that for, for some use cases, yeah, uh, you can use an image CDN and it's affordable. 
I guess one of the the sort of guiding principles is always just to be agile and be prepared for change. Um, and you might start off using an image CDN to dynamically convert your images for you as they're requested. And if that gets to a point where it's not sustainable cost-wise, uh, you can look at another solution and have your code base in a state where it's going to be easy to, to substitute one solution for another. I think generally in any way you're relying on a third-party service, that's a, a good principle to have, isn't it? Um, so these upcoming image formats, you mentioned JPEG XL. What, what is JPEG XL? Where does it come from? And, uh, and what does it That's do for That's an excellent us? question. So JPEG XL is a next generation uh, image format. It's supposed to be general purpose, and it's a codec from the JPEG committee. Uh, it started off uh, with some roots in Google's PIC format and then Cloudinary's FUIF format. There have been a lot of formats over the years that have kind of uh, been subsumed by this effort. But um, it's become a lot more than just the kind of sum of its individual parts. And some of the benefits of JPEG XL are it's great for high fidelity images, really good for lossless. It's got support for progressive decoding, lossless JPEG transcoding. Um, and it's also kind of FOSS and royalty free, which is definitely a benefit. Um, I think that JPEG XL could potentially be a really strong candidate. You know, we were, we were talking earlier about if you were to just pick one, uh, what would you use? And I think that JPEG XL has got potential to be that one. I also don't want to overpromise. Uh, you know, it, we're still very early on with browser support. And so I, th I think that we should really wait and see, um, experiment and evaluate how well it, uh, you know, kind of lines up in practice and meets people's expectations. But I see a lot of potential uh, with JPEG XL for, you know, both those lossy and lossless cases. Uh, right now, um, I, I believe that Chrome is probably the furthest along in terms of support, but I've also seen, you know, definitely interest from, you know, Mozilla side and, and other browsers in this. So I'm excited about the future with JPEG XL. And uh, if we were to say, you know, what is even shorter term uh, of interest to folks, there's, of course, uh, AVIF too. Tell us, tell us about AVIF. This is another one that I'm unfamiliar with. Okay, so we mentioned a little bit earlier about you know uh, AVIF maybe being a better candidate if you need to go to low bit rates uh, and you care about bandwidth more than image fidelity. As a general principle, um, AVIF really takes the lead in low fidelity, high appeal compression, and JPEG XL it should excel in medium to high fidelity. Um, but they are you know slightly different formats in their own right. Uh, we're at a place where AVIF has got, you know, uh, increasingly good browser support. Um, but uh, let me take a, a step back and talk a little bit more about the format. So um, AVIF itself is based on the AV1 video codec, uh, which has been standardized by the Alliance for Open Media. And it tries to give people significant compression gains over, you know, JPEG, over WebP, which we were talking about earlier. And while the exact savings you can get from AVIF um, will depend on the content uh, and your quality targets. Uh, we've seen plenty of cases where it can offer over 50% uh, savings compared to JPEG. Uh, it's got lots of good features. It's able to you know, give you container support for new features like high dynamic range and wide color gamut, uh, film grain synthesis. Um, and again, you know, sim similar to talking about being forward-facing, one of the nice things about the picture tag is that you could serve, you know, users uh, AVIF files right now, and it'll still fall back to your WebP or your JPEG uh, in cases where it's not necessarily supported. 
But it's, you know, you, we, you, going back to your example about Photoshop's safe for web, you could, you know, take a JPEG that's 500 kilobytes in size, uh, try to shoot for a similar quality to Photoshop's safe for web. And with, with AVIF, I would say that you'd probably be able to get to a point where that file size is about 90 kilobytes, 100 kilobytes. So quite, quite a lot of savings with no real discernible loss in quality. And, um, one of the nice things about that is you're, you're ideally not going to be seeing as much loss of the texture in any images that have rich detail. So if you've got photos of, of forests or camping or any of those types of things, they should still look really rich uh, with AVIF. So I'm, I'm quite excited about the direction that AVIF has. I do think it needs a little bit more work in terms of tooling support. Um, so I dropped a tweet out about this the other day. We've got a number of options for using AVIF right now. We've got, you know, for single Im images, we've got Squoosh, uh, Squoosh.app, uh, which is written by another uh, team in Chrome. So shout out to Surma and Jake for working on Squoosh. Um, AVIF.io has got a number of good options for folks who are trying to use AVIF today, regardless of what tech stack they're focused on. Uh, Sharp supports AVIF too. But then generally you think about other places where we deal with images, whether it's, you know, in Figma or in Sketch or in Photoshop or in other places. And I would say that we still need to do a little bit of work in terms of AVIF support there uh, because it needs to be ubiquitous for, you know, developers and users to really feel like it's, it's landed and come home. And that's one of the areas of focus uh, for us with, with the teams working on AVIF uh, in Chrome at the moment, trying to make sure that we can get tooling uh, to a pretty good place. So we've got in HTML the, the picture element um, now, which gives us more flexibility over the, the traditional uh, image tag, although the image tags come, to, come a long way as well, hasn't it? But um, uh, we, we saw picture being added. It was around the same time as the native video tag, I think, in that sort of original batch of HTML5 um, changes. Uh, and this gives us the ability to spec specify multiple sources. Is that right? Yes. So you you can um, uh, list different formats of images uh, and the browser will pick the one it supports. And that and that enables us to be quite experimental straight away without needing to, to worry too much about uh, breaking things for people with older browsers. Absolutely. That, I think that that's one of the nicest benefits of using the picture tag, you know, outside of use cases where you're thinking about art direction, just being able to serve people an image and have the browser go through the list of potential sources and say, okay, well, I will, I will use the one, the first one in that list that I understand. Otherwise I'll fall back. That's a really powerful capability for folks. Um, I think at the same time, uh, you know, I've, I've also heard some folks express some concern or some worry that, you know, you're, we're generating really huge blobs of markup now um, when we're trying to support multiple formats. And you factor in different sizes for those formats and suddenly, woof, it, it gets a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit bulky. So are there other ways that we could approach those problems? Um, I don't want to sell people too much on image CDNs. I, I, like, I, I want them to stand on their <laughs> own. But um, this is one of those places where uh, an idea called content negotiation uh, can actually offer you an interesting path. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about picture tag, where you have to generate a bunch of different resources and decide on the order of preference, right? Extra HTML. With content negotiation, what it says is, let's do all of that work on the server. So the client uh, can tell the server what formats it supports up front uh, via a list of MIME types in the accept HTTP header. Then the server can do all of the heavy work of generating and managing alternate resources, deciding which ones to send down to clients. And one of the powerful things here is if you're using an image CDN, 
you can point to a single resource. So maybe, you know, if we, if we've got, uh, you know, a puppy image like puppy.jpg, we could give people a URL to puppy.jpg. And if their browser supports WebP or it supports AVIF, the server can get really smart about serving down the right image to those users, depending on what their support looks like, but otherwise fall back uh, without you needing to do a ton of extra work yourself. Now, I think that's a powerful idea. Uh, there's a lot that you can do on the server. Uh, you know, we, we sometimes talk about how not everybody has got access to really strong, uh, you know, network quality. Your effective connection type can be really different depending on where you are. Uh, you know, even even living in Silicon Valley, I, I could be walking from a coffee shop to a hotel or I could be in the car and the quality of my Wi-Fi may not or my, you know, or my signal may not be that great. So um, this is where you've got access to other APIs, uh, other ideas like the save data client hint for potentially being able to serve people down even smaller sized resources if the user has opted in to data savings. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting stuff that we could be doing on the server side. And I do think we should keep pushing on these ideas of um, finding a nice balance where people who are comfortable with doing the market path have got all the flexibility to do so. The people who want a slightly more magical solution have also got a few options. The the uh, concept of this sort of data saver uh, approach was something that I learned uh, learned of first from your book. Um, I mean, let's go into that a little bit more because that's quite interesting. So you, you're talking about the um, the browser being able to signal a preference for wanting uh, a reduced data experience back because maybe it's on a metered connection or has low battery or, or something. Exactly. Exactly. I've, I've been traveling, you know, in, in the normal times or the before times, um, back when we would travel a lot more, uh, I've experienced plenty of, of places in the world or situations where, um, you know, my network quality might be really poor or really spotty. And so even opening up a web page can be uh, a frustrating or a difficult experience. You know, I, I might be looking up a menu and if I can't see pictures of the beautiful food they've got available, I might go somewhere where I can or I might, I don't know, make myself some food instead. But um, I think that uh, one of the interesting things about Data Saver is it gives you a connection back to what the user's preferences are. So if, as a user, I know that I'm having a hard time with my network connection. I can say, okay, well, I'm going to opt into data saver mode in my browser. And then you can use that as a developer, as a signal to say, okay, well, uh, you know, the user's in a bit of, bit of a constrained environment. Maybe we will surf them down um, much smaller images or images of a much lower quality, but they still get to see some images at all, which is better than, than waiting a very long time um, for something much richer to be served down. Uh, other benefits of these types of signals are that you can use them for conditionally serving media. So maybe there are cases where text is the most important thing in that page. Maybe you can switch those images off if you discover that users are in kind of a constrained environment. Um, you can, I'll only spend 30 seconds on this, but you can really push this idea to its extremes. Um, some of the interesting things you can do with save data are uh, maybe even turning off uh, very costly features implemented in JavaScript. Like if you have certain components that are considered slightly more optional, uh, maybe those don't necessarily need to be sent down to all users if they only enhance the experience. You can still serve everybody a very core, uh, small, quick experience and then just layer it on with some nice frosting for people who have a faster connection or device. I mean, potentially, I guess you, it could factor into to pagination and you know you could you could return 10 results on a, on a page rather than 100 um, and those sorts of things as well. Sorts of uh, interesting, uh, interesting capabilities there. 
I think we're we're all sort of familiar with the the frustrating process of of getting a new site ready, um, optimizing all your images, uh, handing it over to the client, uh, giving them a, a CMS to to uh, manage the content, and find that they're just re- replacing everything with poorly optimized images. I mean, again. An image CDN, I guess, would be a really convenient solution to that. But are, are there other solutions? Are there things that the CMS could be doing on the server to to help with that? Or is an image CDN just probably the way to go? You know, I think that what we've discovered after probably at least six or seven years of trying to get everybody optimizing their images is that it's a hard problem where, you know, some, some folks involved in the picture might be slightly more technically savvy and maybe comfortable setting up their own tooling or you know, uh, going and running Lighthouse or trying out other tools to let them know whether there are opportunities to improve. I'd love to see people like, you know, consistently using things like Lighthouse to catch if you've got opportunities to optimize further or, you know, serve down images of the right size. But beyond that, sometimes we run into use cases where the people who are uploading images uh, may not necessarily even understand the cost of the resources that they're uploading. Uh, This is Commonly something we run into, and, and I'll apologize, I'm not, I'm not going to call people out too much, but this is something we run into even with the Google blog. Uh, every couple of weeks on the Google blog, um, we'll have somebody upload like a very large 20 or 30 megabyte animated GIF. Um, and they don't know, you know, they, I, I don't expect them to know that that's not a bad, you know, that's not a good idea. Uh, they're trying to make the article look cool and, and you know, very <laughs> engaging and interactive. Um, but those audiences are not necessarily going to know to go and, and run tools or to use ImageOptim or to use, you know, any of these other tools in place. And so um, documenting for them that they should check them out is certainly one option. But being able to automate away the problem, um, I think, is is very compelling and helps us consistently get to a place where we're hopefully balancing the needs of uh, all of our users of CMSs, whether they're technical or non-technical, as well as the needs of our users. So I think that image CDNs can definitely play a role in helping out here. Ultimately, the, the, the thing that's important is making sure you have a solution in place between people, stakeholders who might be uploading those images, and what gets served down to users. If it's an image CDN, if it's something you've rolled yourself, if it's a build step, there just needs to be something in place to make sure that you are not serving down something that's uh, very, very large and, and inefficient. I mean, talking about uh, animated GIFs, um, they, they're surprisingly popular. Um, they're fun. We love them. But they're also huge. Um, and really, it's a, a case where a, form, a file format that was not designed for video is being used for video. Is there a solution to that with any of these image formats? Is there is there anything? What can, what can we do? <laughs> oh gosh, the history the history of of gifs is is fascinating. Um, you know, we saw a lot of the formats we we know and love uh, or have been around for a while were originated in like the the late eighties to early nineties, and the gif is one of those. It was, it was created in nineteen eighty seven. I'm about as old as the gif, um, and. <laughs> You know, it, as, as you mentioned, it wasn't originally created necessarily for this, this use case. I think it was uh, Netscape Navigator, uh, which in, you know, mid-90s maybe added support for looping GIFs and giving us this, this kind of crazy fun way to do, to do memes and, and the like. But uh, the GIFs have got so many weaknesses. They're kind of limited in many cases to a very finite color palette, 256 colors in many cases. They're a uh, 
a bitmapped raster format with pixel values stored in image files. They're very they're very inefficient for a number of reasons. Um, and you mentioned that you know they're also quite large. Uh, I think that we've gotten into this place of thinking that you know if we want a short segment of video or animation that's going to be looping, the GIF is the thing that we have to use. Um, and that's just just not the case. Uh, while we do see that there are modern image formats that have support for animation, um, I think that the, the most basic thing you can do these days is make sure you're serving an, a video down uh, instead of, of a GIF. You know, muted autoplay videos uh, combined with, you know, H.264, H.265, whatever, whatever video codec you're going to use, um, can be really powerful and, and significantly smaller uh, for use cases where you need to be showing a, a sequence of images. And there are options for this. You know, uh, AVIF has got image sequences in there, potentially. Um, other formats have explored these ideas as well. But uh, I think that... Uh, one thing you can do is if you're using GIFs today or you have uh, users who are slightly less technical who are using GIFs today, try to see if you can give them tools that will allow them to export a video instead. Um, or if your pipeline can you know, uh, take care of that for them, that's even better. Um, we, I have plenty of conversations with CMS providers where you, know, uh, you, you do see people uploading GIFs. They don't know the difference between a video and a GIF file. But if you can just, whether it's with an image CDN or via some build process, you know, change the file over to a more efficient format. That, that would be great. So uh, we, we talked briefly about uh, tools like Image Optim that manage to strip out information from the files to give us the same quality of uh, result with a smaller uh, file size. Uh, I, uh, I'm presuming that's because the the file formats that it's, that we commonly deal with weren't optimized for delivery over the web in the first place. So they're doing that step of removing anything that isn't useful for uh, for serving on the web. Do these new formats take that into consider consideration already? So is is something like Image Optim a tool that just won't be required with these newer formats? I think that we're, we're likely to still, I, I, I'm anticipating that some of the older formats, you know, things, things that have been around for a while take a while to phase out or to evolve into something else. And so I can see tools like Image Optim continuing to be useful. Now, what are, what are modern image codecs, or what are modern image formats doing um, that are much better? Well, I would say that they're taking into account um, quite a few things. They're taking into account, you know, um, are there aspects of the picture that the human eye can't necessarily make out uh, a difference around? Um, when I'm playing around with different quality settings or different codecs, I'm always looking for that point where, you know, if I, if I take the quality down low enough, I'm going to see... Uh, banding artifacts. I'm going to see, you know, lots of weird-looking squares around my buildings or or the details in my picture. But once those start to disappear, I really need to start zooming into the image and, and making comparisons um, across these different formats. And if users are unlikely to do that, then um, I think that there are good questions around, uh, you know, is, is that is that point of quality good enough? I think that modern image formats are pretty good at being able to help you navigate uh, filtering out some of those details pretty well, uh, keeping in mind, you know, what are the needs of, of uh, color? Uh, because, you know, obviously we've got white gamut as a thing right now as well. Um, some people might be okay with an amount of changing your color palette versus not depending on the type of images that you have available. But um, definitely I, I see modern formats trying to be resilient against things like, you know, generational loss as well. Um, generational loss is this idea that, you know, we, we, we mentioned memes earlier. 
Uh, a common problem on the web today is you'll find a meme, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or Reddit or whatever else, you'll save it, and maybe you'll share it around with a friend. Maybe they'll upload it somewhere else, and you suddenly have this terrible, you know, kind of uh, copy machine or fax effect of the quality of that image getting worse and worse and worse over time. And so when I see something get reshared that I may have seen three months ago, uh, now it might not be like really, really bad quality. You can still make out some of the details, but image formats being able to keep that in mind and work around those types of problems, I think are really interesting. And I know that JPEG XL is trying to keep this idea of generational loss in mind as well. So there's there's plenty of things that modern codecs and formats are trying to do um, to evolve for our needs, uh, even if they're very meme-focused. Let's say uh, you've inherited a project that has all sorts of image use on it. What what would be the best way to kind of assess the state of that project in terms of um, image optimization? Are, are there tools or, or anything that would help there? I think that uh, it, it depends on how much time you've got uh, to sink into the problem. Um, there are very basic things people can try doing, like, uh, you know, obviously batch converting those images over to uh, more modern formats at the recommended default quality and compare just how, you know, do an eyeball check on how well uh, they're doing compared to the original. If you're able to invest a little bit more time, uh, there are plenty of tools and techniques like ButterOgly, DSSIM, these other ways of being able to compare what the perceptual quality differences are between different types of images that have been converted. And you can use that as a kind of data-driven approach to deciding, you know, if I'm going to, you know, batch convert all of my old images to WebP, uh, what is the quality setting that I should be relying on? If I'm going to be doing it for AVIF or or JPEG XL, what is the quality setting that I should be relying on? Um, And I I think that there's plenty of tools people have available. It really just depends on your time sync um, that's possible. Other things that you can do, uh, again, going back to the image CDN um, aspect, if you don't have a lot of time uh, and you're comfortable with the cost of an image CDN, you can just bulk upload all of those images. And there are CDNs that support this idea um, of automatic quality setting. So I think in Cloudinary, it's QAuto or something like that. But the basic idea there is they will um, do a scan of the image, try to get a sense of like the type of content that's in there, and automatically decide on the right level of quality uh, that you should be using for the images that are getting served down to users. And so you, you do have some tooling options that are available here for sure. I mean, you mentioned um, sort of batch processing of images. Uh, presumably you're into the area of, of that generational loss that you're talking about when uh, when you do that, when you take an already compressed JPEG and then convert it to a WebP, for example, you you risk some loss of quality. Is, is batch converting a, a viable um, strategy or does that generational loss come too much into play if you care about the the sort of pristine look of the images i think it depends on how much you're factoring in kind of you know uh your your levels of comfort with lossy versus lossless um if and your use case uh if my use case is that i have you know i've inherited a project where you know the project in question is all of my family's photos from the last 20 years um, I, I may not be very comfortable with there being too much quality loss in those images. And maybe I'm okay with, uh, you know, spending a little bit more money on storage if the quality can, you know, remain rough, you know, mostly the same, uh, just using a more modern format. If those are images for a product catalog or an e-commerce site, um, I think that uh, you do need to keep in mind uh, what your use case is. So is, are users going to require being able to see these images with a certain level of detail? 
And uh, if that's the case, you need to make those trade-offs in mind when you're choosing the right format, when you're choosing the right quality. So I think that batch is still okay. Uh, to give you a concrete idea of one way I've seen people approach this uh, at scale, sometimes people will uh, take a smaller sample of the images from that big collection that they've inherited, and they'll try out a more serious set of experiments with just that set. And if they're able to land on an approach that works well for the sample, they'll just apply it to the whole batch. And and I've seen that work to varying degrees of success. So optimizing file size is just sort of one point on the overall image optimization landscape. And I'd like to get on to talking about what we can do in our browsers to, to optimize the way that images are used, um, which we'll do after a quick word from this episode's sponsor. When you type in headless CMS on Google or ask your developer friends what they use, you'll get plenty of different options. At Smashing Magazine, we talk about the headless as well as larger Jamstack movement quite a lot. So you might be asking, do I need a headless CMS? And how do I approach evaluating one? The answer always depends on your requirements, but there are clear cases where one CMS stands out from another. Do you need a platform-independent or cross-platform CMS? Do you want to make free technology choices? Is a developer-first approach important to your organization? And do you have any localization requirements? Do you value code simplicity and avoiding plugin apocalypse? If the majority of your answers are a yes, you might want to look into a headless CMS for your next project. And if you opt for a headless CMS, you should look into Storyblock. Storyblock is the world's first headless CMS that works for both developers and business users. Storyblock not only gives developers a modern headless architecture to build fast and reliable digital experiences, it also gives marketers, editors, and everyone using the CMS an easy-to-use visual editor. It might sound simple, but having a CMS interface that everyone in your team likes to use often makes or breaks the success of your content operations. Founded in 2017, Storyblock powers more than 60,000 projects in 130 and more countries. From solo developers to SMEs and large enterprises, such as Pizza Hut, Adidas, or Happy Socks. They all use Storyblock CMS to build great digital experiences for any platform, from corporate websites to mobile apps, to e-commerce shop systems, screen displays, or voice content, all managed in one central place with Storyblock. Loved by thousands of developers, marketers, and editors all around the world, Storyblock has been mentioned as the highest-rated CMS in Europe, as well as a high performer in web CMS worldwide by G2. To give Storyblock a try for yourself, make sure to sign up for a free account at storyblock.com. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-K.com. Go to storyblock.com and sign up for a free account today. We thank Storyblock for sponsoring this podcast. So we've optimized and compressed our large files, um, but now we sort of need to think about a strategy for using those in the browser. Um, the good old faithful image tag has has gained some new powers in, in recent times, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it has. Um, and maybe it's useful for folks. I know that a lot of people that ask me about images these days also ask me to frame it in terms of um, metrics and the Core Web Vitals. Would it be useful for me to talk about what the Core Web Vitals are and maybe frame some of those ideas in those current terms? Absolutely, um, because uh, Core Web Vitals is a sort of initiative um, from Google, isn't it, that, w- that we've seen more recently? And we're told that it, it factors into search ranking potentially at some level. Um, so, yeah, what, what does 
Core Web Vitals actually mean for us in terms of images? Great question. So as, as you mentioned, Core Web Vitals is an initiative by Google, and it's all about trying to share unified guidance for quality signals that can be pretty key to delivering a great user experience on the web. Um, and it is part of a set of page experience signals Google Search may be evaluating um, for ranking purposes, but they can impact the Core Web Vitals in a number of ways. Now, um, before I talk about what those ways are, I should probably say, like, what, what are the Core Web Vitals metrics? Um, so there's kind of, there's currently three metrics that are in the Core Web Vitals. There's largest contentful paint, uh, there's cumulative layout shift, and there's first input delay. Now, in a lot of modern web experiences, uh, we find that images tend to be one of the largest visible elements on the page. You know, we, we see a lot of product pages where we have a big image, that's the main product item image. Uh, we see images in carousels and stories and in banners. Now, largest contentful paints, or LCP, uh, is a core web vital metric that tries to measure when the largest contentful elements, whether it's an image, text, or something else, uh, is in a user's viewport, uh, such that you know, we're able to tell when that image becomes visible. And that really allows a browser to determine when the main content of the page has really finished rendering. So if I'm trying to go to, you know, a recipe site, I might care about how that recipe looks. And so we care about making sure that that big hero image of the recipe uh, is visible to me. Um, now, the, the LCP image can change over time. Uh, it, it's very possible, sorry, the LCP element can change over time. It's very possible that, you know, early on in load, the largest thing may be a heading. But as the page continues to load, it might actually end up being a much larger image or a poster of some sort. And so when you're trying to optimize largest contentful paint, there's about four things that you can do. The first thing is making sure that you're requesting your key hero image as early on as possible. Uh, generally, we have a number of things that are important in the page. We want to make sure that we can render the main page's content and layout. You know, for layout, Typically, we're talking about CSS. So you may be using critical CSS, inline CSS in your pages, want to avoid things that are render blocking. But then when it comes to your image, um, ideally, you should be requesting that image early. Maybe that involves just making sure that the browser can discover that image as early on in the page as possible. Uh, given that a lot of us these days are relying on frameworks, um, if you're not necessarily using SSR, uh, server-side rendering, if you are, you know, uh, waiting on the browser to discover some of your JavaScript bundles, bundles for your components, whether you're, you know, you have a component for your hero image or, or product image, um, if the browser has to uh, wait to fetch, parse, execute, compile, compile and execute um, all of these different files before it can discover the image, that might mean that your largest contentful image is going to take some time before it can be discovered. Now, if that's the case, if you find yourself in a place where the image is being requested pretty late, uh, you can take advantage of a browser feature called Link Rel Preload uh, to make sure that the browser can discover that image as early as possible. Now, Preload is a really powerful capability. It's also one that you need to take a lot of care with. Uh, these days, it's very easy to get to a place where, you know, um, maybe you hear that we're recommending preload for your key uh, hero image, as well as your key scripts, as well as your key fonts. And it becomes just this really big mess of trying to make sure that you're sequencing things in the right order. So the, the LCP image is, is definitely one key place worth keeping in mind for this. The other thing, so as I mentioned four things, the other thing is make sure you're using source set and an efficient modern image format. Um, I think that source set is really powerful. Uh, I also see, you know, sometimes when people are using it, 
they'll uh, they'll try to um, overcompensate and will maybe ship 10 different versions of images uh, in there for each possible resolution. Uh, we tend to find, at least in some research, that beyond uh, three-by images, uh, users have a really hard time being able to tell what the differences are for image quality and sharpness and detail. So DPR capping, uh, uh, device pixel ratio capping, is certainly an idea worth keeping in mind. And then for modern image formats, we talked about formats earlier, but consider your WebP, your AVIF, your JPEG XL. Um, avoid wasting pixels. It's really important to have a good strategy in place for quality. Um, and uh, I, th I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of cases where even the default quality can sometimes be be, be too much. So I, I would ex I would experiment with trying to lower your bit rate, lower your quality settings, and see just how far you can take things for your users while maintaining sharpness. And then when we're talking about loading, um, one of the other things that the image tag has kind of evolved to support over the last couple of years is lazy loading. So with loading equals lazy, uh, you no longer need to necessarily use a JavaScript library to add lazy loading to your images. You just drop that onto your image, and uh, in Chromium browsers and Firefox, you'll be able to lazy load those images um, without needing to use any third-party dependencies, uh, and that's that's quite nice too. So you know we've got lazy loading in place. We've got support for other things like async decoding, but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep things going and talk very quickly about the other two core vitals metrics. Go for it. Yep. So um, cumulative layout shift. Uh, nobody likes things jumping around their pages. Uh, I feel like you know it, one of one of my biggest frustrations is I open up a web page, I, I hover my my finger over a button I want to click, and then suddenly a bunch of like either ads or images without dimension set or other things pop in and it causes just like a really unpleasant experience. So um, cumulative layout shift tries to measure the instability of content. And a lot of the time, the common things that are pushing uh, your layout shifts um, are images or other elements on your page that just don't have dimension set. Uh, I think that that's one of those places where, you know, it's, it's often straightforward for people to set image, you know, image dimensions. Maybe it's not something we've historically done quite as much of, but um, certainly something worth spending your time on. In tools like Lighthouse, we'll try to help you collect, like, what is the list of images on your page that require dimensions so you can go and you can set them? I would say that's a really interesting point because uh, when responsive web design became a thing, we went through our sites and stripped out image dimensions because the the, the tools we had at our disposable to, make, uh, disposable to make that work required that we didn't have height and width attributes on our images. But that's a bad idea now, is it? All, all that was uh, once old is new again. Um, I would say that uh, it's <laughs> worth definitely worth uh, setting dimensions on your images. Uh, set dimensions on your ads, your iframes. Anything that is dynamic content that could potentially change in size is, is worth setting dimensions on. Um, and for folks who are building, you know, a really fun out there experience, out, out there's the wrong phrase, really fun layout experiences where maybe you need to do kind of more uh, work on responsive cards and the like, uh, I would consider using CSS aspect ratio or aspect ratio boxes to reserve your space. And that can complement, you know, setting dimensions on those images well for uh, making sure that things are like as fixed as possible when you're uh, trying to avoid your layout shifts. 
And then um, finally, last core vital is first input delay. Uh, this is something people don't necessarily always think about when it comes to images. So it is in fact possible for images to block a user's uh, bandwidth and CPU on page load. Uh, they can get in the way of how other critical resources are loaded in, in particular on really slow connections or on lower end mobile devices um, that can lead to bandwidth saturation. So first input delay is a uh, core vital metric that captures a user's first impression of a site's interactivity and responsiveness. And so by reducing main thread CPU usage, your first input delay can also be kind of minimized. Um, so in general, they're just avoid images that might cause network contention. Um, they don't necessarily, you know, they're not network, they're not render blocking, but they can still indirectly impact your rendering performance. And is there anything we can do with, with images to stop them um, uh, render blocking? Um, is it, can we take load off the browser in, in that initial phase somehow to, to enable us to be interactive quicker? I think it's really important uh, increasingly these days to have a good understanding of the right optimal image sequence for displaying something above the fold. Um, I know that above the fold is an overloaded term, but like in the, the user's first viewport, um, very often uh, we can end up uh, trying to request a whole ton of resources, some of them uh, being images that are not really uh, necessary for what the user is immediately going to see. And those tend to be great candidates for loading later on in the page's lifecycle, great things to lazy load in place. Um, but if you're requesting a whole slew of images, like a whole queue of things very early on, those can potentially have an impact. Um, yes. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, lazy loading images that we've we've historically uh, required a, a JavaScript library to do, which has its own setbacks, I think, because of historic ways that browsers optimized loading um, loading images, where it was, it's almost impossible to stop them loading images unless you just don't give it a source. Uh, and if you don't give it a source and then try and correct it with JavaScript afterwards, um, if that JavaScript doesn't run, you get no images. So, uh, lazy loading, native lazy loading is is an answer to all that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that this is a place where uh, we have tried to improve uh, across browsers the native lazy loading experience um, over the last year. Uh, as you know, we, this is one of those features where we shipped something early uh, and we're able to take advantage of conversations with thought leaders in the industry to understand like, oh, hey, what, what are the thresholds you're actually manually setting if you're using lazy sizes or you're using other uh, JavaScript uh, lazy loading libraries? And then we tuned our thresholds to try getting uh, to a slightly closer place to, to, to what you'd expect them to be. Um, so in, in a lot of cases, you can just use native lazy loading. If you need something a lot more um, refined, if you need a lot more control over being able to set, you know, the intersection observer thresholds, the point at when the browser is going to request things, we we tell it, we, we generally suggest go, go and use a, a library in those cases, just because we're trying to solve for the 90% use case, but the 10% is still valid. You know, there might be people who still need something a little bit more. Um, and so for most people, I'm hopeful that native lazy loading will be good enough uh, for, for the foreseeable future. And most of all, it's free, you know, a, a simple um, a simple attribute to, to add and you get all this functionality um, for free, which is, uh, which is great. If there was one thing that uh, a listener would, uh, could do, could go away and do to their site to improve their image optimization, what would it be? Where, where should they start? A good place to start is understand how much of a problem uh, this is for your site. Uh, I would go and check out either Lighthouse or PageSpeed Insights. Go and run it on you know a few of your most popular pages and just see what comes out. 
If it looks like, you know, you've only got one or two um, small things to do, that's fantastic. Uh, maybe you can put some time in there. If there's a long list of things for you to do, maybe take a look at the highest opportunities um, that you have in there. Things that say, oh, hey, you could save multiple seconds if you were to do this one thing and focus your energy there uh, to begin with. Um, as, as we've talked about here Tooling for modern image formats has gotten better over time. Image CDNs can definitely be worth considering. Um, but beyond that, uh, there's a lot of small steps you can take. Sometimes, you know, if it's if it's a small enough site, even just going and opening up Squoosh, putting a few of your images through there can be a great starting point. That's, uh, that's solid advice. Um, now, I know it's a, a smashing publication, but I really must congratulate you on the book. Um, it's just so comprehensive and really easy to digest. I think it's a, a really valuable read. Um, so I've been learning all about image optimization. What have you been learning about lately, Andy? What have I been learning about lately? Uh, ac- actually, uh, on a slightly different topic that still has to do with images. So when I was... Uh, when I was doing my master's uh, at college, I got really deep into um, computer vision and trying to understand like how can we detect different parts of an image and do wild and interesting things with them. Um, and a specific problem I've been digging into recently is I've been looking at pictures of myself when I was uh, when I was a baby or a kid, and uh, back then. Um, a lot of the photos my parents would take were not necessarily on, on digital cameras. They were Polaroids. They're often somewhat low-resolution images. And I wanted a way to be able to scale those up. Uh, and so I started digging into this problem again recently. And it led me to learn a lot more about uh, what I can do in the browser. So um, I've been building out some small tools uh, that let you, um, using machine learning, using TensorFlow, uh, using existing technologies, take a relatively low-resolution image or illustration and then upscale them to something that is much higher quality uh, so that it's 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 better than simply just like stretching the image out. It's like actually filling in detail. And that's been kind of fun. I've been learning a lot about, you know, how stable WebAssembly is now cross-browser, um, how well you can use some of these ideas uh, on for desktop application use cases, and that's been really fun. So I, I've been I've been digging into a lot of WebAssembly recently, and that's been cool. It's funny, isn't it, when a technology comes along that that turns uh, everything you you know on its head. You know, we've always said that on, on the web we can make images smaller, but if we've only got a small image, we can't. You know, we can't work. We can't make it bigger. It just—it's impossible. Um, but now we have technology that you know, under under a lot of circumstances, might make that uh, possible. It's uh, it's really fascinating. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Addy, you can find him on Twitter, where he's at Addy Osmani, and find all his projects linked from AddyOsmani.com. The book Image Optimization is available both physically and digitally from Smashing right now at SmashingMagazine.com. Thanks for joining us today, Addy. Do you have any parting words? Any parting words? I have um, a little uh, quirk from history that I will share with people. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee uploaded the very first image to the internet in 1992. Uh, I'm not sure if you can guess what it was, but you'll probably be surprised. Uh, Drew, do you have any guesses? Uh, I'm guessing a cat. A cat? It's a good guess, but no. Uh, this was this was at CERN, and the image was actually of a band called Les Horribles Cernets, uh, which was a parody pop band formed by a bunch of CERN employees. And <laughs> the music they would do was like uh, doo-wop uh, 
music <laughs> and they would sing love songs about colliders and quirks and liquid nitrogen and antimatter wearing 60s outfits, uh, which I found just <laughs> wonderful and random. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at smashingmag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. <laughs>